Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 3, Episode 12, Justin Bellow. Let's get this show on the road. This was a fun episode. I, I'm a little sad that we've like basically turned Hendrix to an ally and then immediately lost him. Like a bit of a bummer. Oh my goodness. I have so many thoughts about that. Um, but we'll get to those when we get to story time, frankly, because yeah. <laughs> the only thing I'll say before the recap is what does the title mean? Do we know? So yes, there is definitely a meaning to that. So in international humanitarian law or Justin Bellow, is the law that governs the way in which warfare is conducted. So international humanitarian law, or IHL, is purely humanitarian and seeking to limit the suffering caused. So the goal is to try to limit suffering in warfare. It is independent from questions about the justification or reasoning for war or its prevention, covered by just ad bellum. So that's a whole other uh, thing. And this... I'm reading this directly from the International Committee of the Red Cross. Knowing that now it speaks volumes of this episode, which I guess I should recap for us. <laughs> Three, two, one, go. Yay, Bella's back for all of 11 seconds while she calls the cops on the boys' dick move. But whatever. The boys get caught. Of course, Hendrix is involved. They're locked up. Hendrix is being a bit of a jerk to the rest of the cops. But eh, given the history with the boys, I kind of feel it. He seems to know the boys are like air quotes hunting monsters, which he thinks is bullshit. I forget if we knew that from before. Then shit goes wrong. Clearly demons are involved. People are being possessed, including Hendrickson, who luckily they save thanks to holy toilet water, which is hilarious in my books. They have an all out war with the demons. Bella tries to show up. Bella tries to kill a poor girl because she's a virgin and herself in the same move just to save the boys. But ultimately, they find their own way out of it, which is really not a difficult plan and was actually better than her plan by a long shot. Unfortunately, things do go south by the end, even though they made an ally of Hendrix. Lilith, who we find out is our new big bad of the series, shows up and murders many, many people's time. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty intense episode. My big note in this one was we get our first new big bad since Yellow Eyes. Lilith is introduced. Lilith is going to be around until season four. Lilith is a very big bad. I've been saying the show needs more badass women. I mean, she appears to be like a six-year-old girl, so we'll have to judge further down the line. But for now, she seems scary and... Is it always that creepy child thing that kind of works for them, I guess? The way that the writers are going to kind of play with the people that uh, Lilith possesses is very interesting. And again, we'll see this in future episodes and we'll be able to talk about it more. I don't want to I don't want to give away too much about Lilith for now. Personally and from you, I know nothing. I know she is currently in the body of a little girl and she can do the big explodies. Let's uh, walk into the long game briefly so that we can just note a few things. Uh, so like you said, Bella is back very briefly. Ruby is back fairly briefly. And Henrik Henriksen is back and gone pretty quickly. 
I was really like, I was reading through your notes and I was like, wait, is Bella back? Like she's on the phone. Do we see her? Yes, they do at least cut to her for the phone call. But I mean, like basically she was a phone call. Like Ruby gets some screen time and gets to at least do a little bit. But really, it's like it almost feels like they were contractually obligated to let them into the show every X number of episodes for X amount of screen time. And they were just like, oh, it's been too long since they've been on screen. Uh, Give me the cameo real quick. Ruby is important in that moment. And we'll see why. We'll see why again. The next thing that I'd like us to remark is that we and by the way, we can only really notice this because we get so many shots of their feet in this episode and their shoes and their boots and their footwear. But the boots that Sam and Dean are wearing are actually going to be the same ones, or at the very least, the same brands, right? Like, not necessarily the actual boots. They're going to be the same until the end of the series. So Dean, just as a little note, is wearing Carolina loggers, affectionately known on TikTok as Dean's whore boots, (laughs) which I think is funny. But also the fact that you've now just told me that he pretty much wears these all the time, just also as a second layer to that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. They're they're like his boots or his whore boots. And <laughs> Sam is wearing Blundstones, just like the good he, him, lesbian that he is. Fun fact, we know who sold him some of those boots. Yes, we do know about that. <laughs> One of our friends ended up selling Jared Padalecki some Blundstones in Vancouver, 15 years ago. So yes, that was a thing <laughs> that happened. <laughs> Little tiny note, we see the anti-possession tattoos for the first time and those as tattoos tend to do, will follow them until the end of the series. I was going to say this is one of those things where like, I've known about this tattoo forever because I feel like every fan who has a tattoo has this tattoo. It never occurred to me that that's specifically what it was. Like, to me, it was just like, oh, this is a thing from the show you got as a tattoo because it's a good design. It never clicked that it's the tattoo they have in the show until seeing it now. Now, the reason why I mentioned this is because in Born Under a Bad Sign, Sam was possessed by Meg, as we remember. And I had said in the long game that we would find a much more permanent and efficient way to make sure that the boys would not be possessed anymore. And this is it. I mean, he even references it at some point. Someone, I think uh, Hend- Hendrickson actually asked, like, how long have you had those? And Sam says, not long enough. But specifically, Sam, like, learn my lesson. <laughs> oh, Sam. And as we've already been discussing, we are introduced to Lilith. And I will note this here, because it's just a little side note here. There's a really awkward moment between Sam and Dean when Ruby mentions Lilith for the first time. Because Dean realizes that Sam knew about her and he didn't tell him. And in true Dean fashion, obviously he, and understandably, right? Like I'd be pissed off too. He goes, well, gee, Sam, is there anything else I should know? And it's awkward because yes, there absolutely is something that Sam's not telling him. He hasn't told him about the demon blood. I mean, we literally last episode discussed the fact that Dean is, Sam is keeping secrets from Dean. And we, I mean, I think we were speaking specifically about this whole six month span that the trickster undid in uh, the last episode. And then I was like, oh, there's also the whole demon blood thing. I forgot this was a secret that Sam knew. Yeah, we tend to forget, but it's it's there. It's there. And he hasn't told Dean, right? He hasn't told Dean. So shall we head into story time and discuss a little more? Mm-hmm. I really appreciated that really early on in the episode, we understand that Henriksen already knows just how dangerous Sam and Dean are. Like he doesn't underestimate them. And remember also that at this point, he doesn't 
quite know that they're hunters. Like he thinks that they're some sort of white supremacist terrorists. It's a really interesting commentary that a black man would be the one to actually take that threat seriously when all the white people around in the room are like, meh, they're just fugitives, whatevs, it'll be fine, we'll just put them in the jail right next to the drunk guy. Like, he takes them seriously. Yeah, he comes across as really competent. It's like... I, I feel like I don't think he ever underestimated them, but now he's taking it like a step further. Like he's really preempting whatever might happen. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure if you sat him down and really like fought him, be like, why'd you kick the drunk guy out of the drunk tank? He'd be like, because he's probably in on the whole thing. And the boys planted him here just in case they got caught. And he has a key in his beard. And <gasps> oh. I, I wouldn't call him crazy for saying that knowing those boys. Right. Well, so on that, I wanted to ask you, what did you make of the conversation between him and Dean with Sam sulking in the corner when they're in the jail cell? I mean, it's that good banter we like. It's kind of playing with each other. Dean's got that kind of like defensive snarky sarcasm going on. And it it feels it feels very showboating on Hendrickson's side of very like. Haha, <laughs> I caught you in this time. I'm not going to make the same mistakes as last time. And Dean is just being that snarky, like, yeah, no, we'll be out of here by breakfast. Don't worry. Like, mm-hmm. and it, it feels fun. Like, neither one of them is being too difficult until, of course, he brings up John and implies <sighs> things John may have done to the boys. Okay, so I was going to say, because it's it's very playful at the beginning, but then the tone really changes the moment that he makes that, that comment. And yeah. I have to say, like, I have a few thoughts about this whole scene and this whole situation. The first thing is that I'm really amazed at how easy it was for Henriksen to kind of, like, push the brothers. Because at first, like you said, Dean really tries to make it seem like he's completely unbothered. And by the end, like, he is ready to throw some punches. And to me, what's even more amazing is that so is Sam. When he hears Victor say that John no doubt touched them in the wrong places, quote unquote, Sam gets up from the bed and he's looking at Henriksen like, that's too far. If you remember, Dean has said this before to to Bella that was in Red Sky at Morning. Now, the second thing that I noticed here is that Dean says, you kinky son of a bitch. We don't swing that way. You know, when when he talks about them being chained up and how like he was really happy to see them that way. Mm-hmm. So what does that remind you of? When did Dean say that before? I, I, he definitely has. I couldn't tell you when exactly, but I know he's definitely like brought up like not being into that kind of thing. Right. So he said that in Croatoan in season two. Who does he say it to again? He says it, so he actually says it to the group of men who are guarding the exit of the city or the entrance of the city or the town. When he's trying to exit the town. Okay, I do remember that, yes. Okay. And something that I'd like to notice about both situations is that Dean was uncomfortable and he was trying to kind of like break the tension, but also demean the man in front of him. Like kind of like what he does with Sam when he's afraid that people are going to think that he's queer, you know, like, no, I'm, I'm not gay. You're gay. You know, like oh, it's kind yeah, of what he does. It's the, 
that is the classic um, I am rubber, you're glue defense, as we call it. Exactly. And and kind of feels like what he's doing here with Henriksen. And I bring this up because I've heard so many people use this as proof that Dean isn't queer. But really, I really don't think that this is what's happening here. I Like I said, I think that this is our actually, like you said, it's I'm rubber and you're glue. I mean... I can literally look back in my own life at times where like I was accused of being queer and like had to like turn around and call the other person queer because I was a dumb kid. Mm. And now look at me. <laughs> Out and fucking proud. Queer. <laughs> proud of it. There you so, go. Yeah. No, but, and I think that's important to say, right? Like queer people for their safety oftentimes have to lie about who they are mm-hmm. and their identity and their sexuality. And, you know, like that shouldn't be used against them afterwards. And same thing for Dean. No. And I think someone in Dean's position where he knows that there's this like machoism of the people around him, it's even more important. Now, I wanted to point out what I really see as a quintessential Sam moment. When Deputy Director Groves, who we end up finding out is actually possessed by a demon, shoots Dean in the jail cell, Sam just goes for him and grabs his gun. Like, he doesn't think, he just reacts. And then he looks up and he immediately realizes what's happening, and he basically recites an exorcism, which he's learned by heart. And I feel like this is peak Sam Winchester badassery. Oh, fully. Yeah, no, there was, I had two things in this scene that, like, I had to reflect on, and one is, like, what a dumb move for the demon to pull out the gun and, like, put it through the bars to take a shot, (laughs) but then I also think about, like, I feel like most demons probably aren't really used to firearms, so I think I can let that slide. You know what? I feel like I, I I accept this narrative explanation because I was wondering the same thing. I was like, well, it's so dumb. But now I'm like, okay, yeah, it's a dumb demon who doesn't know how to fire a, d- a dumb gun, you know? Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, exactly. Like this is like, I have this entire headcanon of like demons like learning new technology through time being like, mm-hmm. how do you use this thing? <laughs> like the first demon to use a crossbow, like, oh. Um, <laughs> but then I also just love Sam like memorizing this exorcism, which I think probably happened during that six month window. Maybe. Cause up until now, he's always needed to recite it off something. This is the mm-hmm. first time it's being done from memory. Mm-hmm. And it's right after this six month gap where he became like the ultimate demon hunting machine. Oh man. Wow. Like I wonder, I wonder if in another scenario would Dean have like get questioned it and I guess just was too frazzled from, you know, being shot to think about it. <gasps> okay. So you're saying that Sam is a particularly good hunter at this moment because of the six months that he spent like in that time loop with, with yeah. the trickster. Okay. Oof. Like hunting alone without Dean. Wow. Oh, I Drew. only just thought of that right now and it's <laughs> killing me. <laughs> <laughs> that he's inherited um, skills from that time. I I I I don't like it at all. <laughs> Take it back. <laughs> I the thing is, you know what? I kind of do like it. I love it. I hate it, and, but I love it. Oh yeah, and like I can already tell from your reaction, this is not a thing that like we have canonical evidence of. But I would have loved that as like a thing, Dean. Like, when did you figure that out, or how did you learn that, or when did you learn about this, and have Sam kind of just like, oh, whatever, mm. I do research when I'm bored. But just like, mm, we know, we know. Oof, okay. Traumatic Sam. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. 
Well, on that note, I feel like my next observation, I guess, is directly related because can we discuss his choice of assaulting Nancy and stealing her rosary instead of just asking her for it? Yeah, that seemed very strange. Like, I get that it's probably the more guaranteed solution. But I feel like you already tested the waters with her, like, giving you the towel. Mm. And then to extend that to we believe in you, like, we believe in the power of the cross. And I would just like your rosary so I can pray, like, which is technically not lying, really. I think probably would have worked. But again, I think this is... This is the Sam we've come to know now. Sam who's a little bit more, you know, hey, it's it's a jerk move, but it's going to work. Yeah, well, I feel like this is one of the indications that, and kind of like the title hints at, Sam is, is starting to worry about, quote unquote, the greater good, whatever that means, in his own interpretation of it. And in his own interpretation of the greater good, it was easier or better to get the rosary from Nancy there or that way rather than wasting time, I guess, trying to convince her. Um, And and I think that it emphasizes the questions that the show is trying to ask about Sam's humanity in this season. We've definitely talked about it before, so I'm not going to rehash too much, but we've definitely brought up the fact that there seems to be this level of Sam that is much more get shit done, kind of adopt the Deanisms a little more, mm-hmm. which we all know are just Johnisms passed down. It's a terrible traumatic chain. But it really just feels like we're at that point now where Dean has rubbed off on Sam enough that he's kind of like, Dean's right, I gotta be a little more harsh. This this episode, I mean, it's a good episode, but at the same time, it's really hard to watch. I find It's a tough one. Um, yeah. And I feel like this also takes us into the bigger conversation about Nancy. So she's the literal image of purity. She's a God-fearing Christian virgin, which is really a little on the nose for me, but all right, let's go with it. Yeah. Um, At least there's really no doubt about what message the episode is trying to convey here, right? Like it's crystal clear. Oh, yeah, no, it is blunt. And throughout the episode, we're seeing Henriksen check in on her and same with Dean. And that's in contrast with Sam, who's basically using her without like apparent concern for her well-being. Like, of course, he doesn't hurt her, but he sure scared her and definitely made her feel powerless in that moment. And I feel like this is also foreshadowing to what happens later in the episode when Ruby says that she can get everybody out safely so long as they sacrifice the virgin. Now, obviously, again, Dean and Victor are strongly against this plan, with Victor saying, quote-unquote, we don't kill people, we do that, we're no better than them. And you can see Dean being, like, smitten with his new boyfriend, I mean, his new friend, and we'll get back to that later. (laughs) And Ruby keeps saying that they don't have a choice, and lo and behold, Sam doesn't disagree with her, which isn't quite agreeing but the Sam that we met in season one would have very vocally disagreed and sided with Dean and Victor and so this kind of comes back again to those questions that we have about Sam and his humanity yeah this is like a really big one like I get that he never outright like goes I'm with Ruby on this one but the fact that he like 
pauses enough to consider it mm-hmm. without just, I mean, doing the Dean and just jumping to the, no, we don't murder innocent people, even mm-hmm. if it's like, yeah, no, that is one of those moments where I'm very like, it almost feels too harsh, but the fact that he's still on the fence, like, balances it enough, but ooh, I don't like this version of Sam we're getting. Well, because again, he's sort of wondering now, what is the best option for the greater good? Like, is the life of one person worth sacrificing if you can save six people's lives? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. We all know it, but in practice is stupid. I was going to say, but does it really, though? (laughs) Oh, no, no. It's a terrible piece of advice. Uh, I think that any, in general, like any piece of advice that kind of like makes a very big blanket statement like that needs to be really looked at. If you decontextualize it from where it was meant to be understood, you can get to some really, really, really difficult and problematic um, schools of thought. And this is one, definitely one of them. Certainly. Now, I'd like for us to take a little step back and uh, scratch a little bit at that conversation between Dean and Victor. The first and basically the only real conversation between them. Like, I just think there's a lot there. Like, what did you think? I mean, right away, the connection between them is so wholesome, if that's the right word to use. Like, no, there's like a weird playfulness in the two of them being able to commiserate a little bit and like some similar upbringing it feels like like i feel like if they had both walked away from this episode as opposed to only one of them i would really be sitting here being like how does he not become a main character how does he not become like the first on-screen boyfriend for dean Hmm. like there's a really wholesome cuteness to the two of them and like learning his story as little as we get it like helps open up his character but doesn't feel like it came from nowhere. It helps like better understand his character. Like he's well written. He really is. Yeah. For all of the episode and a half total screen time he gets. Yes. He, I, I think that he was definitely an underutilized character. I hope, or I wished that he could have stayed longer, but he did not, unfortunately, because, um, Supernatural likes to kill its darlings, and uh, there you go. That's one of them. Mm -hmm. I just want to talk about the fact that the word swing or swinging is used twice in the episode. The first time it's when Dean is saying to, to, or he's trying to demean Victor by saying, like, by basically by calling him gay. And the second time it's Dean saying that he chooses to go down swinging as he's- With him- with him staring into his eyes right after their little conversation. So I just find that it's an interesting juxtaposition. Um, and it's rare that you're going to have like that word anyway, in, in like so close together in those episodes. So I just think that there's something interesting there. I don't know. Yeah. Just saying. It really, it really feels like someone could have like purposely been like, Oh, I'm going to choose to use this expression. Why? I just like this expression. No ulterior motive. (laughs) Well, the thing is that the thing that happens right after he says that is that they start discussing like marital status and availability. (laughs) Oh my God, they do. And Victor says like, 
I'm right where you are with like this little laugh. Like, okay, sure. This is a very straight moment, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. No. Yeah. The, the heterosexual energy coming off that scene was palpable sarcasm. <laughs> and the final thing also in the following scene, Dean and Victor are sharing the same desk and like, they're basically standing so freaking close to each other that they might as well have been holding hands and you can see that, like, they're looking at each other during the whole exchange of, like, should we sacrifice the virgin or not? And then, like, that's when Dean is like, oh, he doesn't want to sacrifice the virgin. Oh, for me, it was the moment when he compliments him on the uh, salt in the buckshot. Yes. <laughs> and he, like, the, the like that smug smile of, like, yeah, I'm good. You know, yeah, baby. I'm good. Tell me I'm a good boy. <laughs> Uh, before okay, this gets well. too horny, shall we go to critical time? Yes, that works. So who do we have as our writing and directing team this week? I'm going to start with the director. This episode was directed by Phil Scritchia, who this season directed The Kids Are All Right. And the writer was, bum bum Sarah Gamble. Oh, that explains why they kill someone we liked. Of course. So this season, she wrote uh, The Kids Are All Right, Fresh Blood, Dream a Little Dream of Me with Katherine Humphreys. And again, like if we're keeping score, kind of like what you mentioned, remember when I told you that Sarah Gamble would be heeding the charge to kill so many of our favorite characters? Because, I mean, she killed Gordon in Fresh Blood and now Henriksen, and that's two black characters in one season. Oh, not a good scorecard, honey. No, no bad. Honestly, I really did enjoy the episode. It's a tough one. It's a fun one. It's got basically like all of the the te- the the hurt comfort that like supernatural usually gives you, and so I I did appreciate that. It was quick to the setup. It was a fun encounter. It gave us those moments of like, what are we going to do? And then I always love the payoff of a really good plan. So the whole pre-recorded exorcism on the on the like loudspeakers and like trapping them in. Mwah, just like what a masterful plan. I, I just. You know what? We I'm going to be very, very blunt. We have not been the biggest fans of Sarah recently or ever. This was a good episode, despite its downfalls where it was good. It really shone. I absolutely agree. Like I said, like it. It was a good episode. It's not usually one that I skip in my rewatches, and I think that that says something. What do you have in terms of lore this week for us? Interestingly, my lore discussion for this week will be demonic possessions, but less the historical lore and more the modern-day lore. Ooh, oh my goodness. Okay. Okay, when I say modern, I'm still reaching back a little further than most people probably expect. Possession by demons has been depicted differently across media, Some may look upon The Exorcist as the most famous example, and truly it is film history's first real depiction of a possession, and what is a long-held belief. Generally, all examples of possession in media is of supernatural entities. Uh, Usually this is demons, but we have had movie examples of angels, spirits, aliens. Pretty much, if it can take over a body, it's probably done its own in a movie at some point. Then it comes down to, why possess somebody? So, going back to our first example of poor Regan from The Exorcist, she's basically possessed purely for the plot of the movie to be a damsel in distress. Most 
possessions around this time and moving on from the exorcist were women. And really this just comes down to women becoming an object to be saved for the sake of a plot usually led by men. We do flip the script a little bit on the second type of possessions, which is being seen more frequently. And again, supernatural is our core example for this one. Actually, I'd like to use using somebody as a, and uh, this is my own choice of words. I'm a patent pending meat puppet. I think Supernatural likes to use meat suits, so you're not that far off. <laughs> I feel like I've heard meat suit used as well, yes. But essentially, the possession is a means to an end. You're possessing someone to either infiltrate or sneak into a place, uh, basically a disguise, or to enact something that you could not do on your own, which we seem to be the more common reason for the demons here in Supernatural. They either need a corporeal form of some sort they don't have on their own, so they have to possess somebody to be able to confront now, as time has passed, possessions have become slightly more gender inclusive, I guess is the best term to use here. However, films still tend to rely on the damsel in distress trope to put women in you know, a position of torture or suffering to further a plot, which, again, usually stars men uh, versus men who are usually possessed in order to complete a goal, oftentimes even just scaring people or being the big bad. But I do want to point out something interesting in Supernatural where... It ironically, in a weird way, has kind of taken a really interesting spin on the possession with demons. And that seems to be a preference for possessing women. And not making them a damsel in distress, per se, but almost using the gender as a weapon. I mean, you have a world which, more from a writing perspective, I imagine, uh, given its time, that is very male-focused. And again, the male gaze kind of being the dominant view of most people, unfortunately. And we have these demons selecting traditionally attractive women. I feel this is not just a comfort choice. This is a literal weaponized choice. They're using this against the men they fight. So weirdly, in a show where we have had so much issue with the way that women have been portrayed, unfortunately, and I'm waiting for better female characters more than just Bella, the choice of demons to possess women actually seems to be an advantage here against humans and specifically men who tend to fall for the male gaze. I'm a bit puzzled by this observation because I wonder what your thoughts are about this. Do you think that it's that they're they're using the male gaze as a weapon or do you feel like it's a way to discuss or to display the dangers of femininity and the dangers of women? I think that is a completely equal and valid observation on the same level. Unfortunately, given the way the show is written, and I feel like this comes down to more of a critical writing side of things, you're probably right. I think I'm digging more for a story perspective. Realistically, this is very much a writer's room decision or a casting decision that can be that I'm trying to explain away more. I think when I think your view is probably more the real world accuracy. I mean, there's nothing that says that it can't be both. I, I think that it kind of comes back to intent versus interpretation because maybe the intent was to say like, oh, and then they like use the fact that he's a dumb man and thinks she's pretty in order to like to do this. And so the intent is this. But then when you look at it critically, it also like furthers the narrative that like women and their feminine wiles will like be the death of of men. Right. And so. I think that's why when you're trying to like 
flip a trope on its head, you have to be really careful about what you're actually doing and how it can be interpreted. Because if it's done kind of willy-nilly, then you end up with unclear messaging. That's what sparked this entire post-lore conversation, thankfully. The way you put it, I really like because I think it is kind of two sides of the same coin. The idea of there is a male gaze, so using a female body can be an advantage to hold over them and against them. The narrative and the view of, you know, women and their wiles, as you put it, is again just the male gaze putting a negative spin on women and their sexuality. Exactly. It's basically saying that like the, the one advantage that women have in a very toxic masculine and patriarchal society is like just as bad as the oppression that they receive from, from, from men. And so that's why to me, it's a bit problematic the way that it's done. But I also understand the, anyway, I understand the intent, but it's, it's just very unclear to me. (laughs) It feels like one of those cases of like, See, I have illustrated a point to you, and within my own argument, I have proven myself wrong. <laughs> I don't think it's right or wrong, though. That's kind of what I'm saying. I just... I mean, the supernatural writing room more. Oh, the writing room. Okay, well, I mean, they do that a lot, unfortunately. So. No, you and I are totally 100% right on this one. <laughs> Thanks, True. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I'm glad I could share, and I would love to hear what kind of critique you have for us this week. Well, I just had a thought when I was watching this episode, because I don't know if you... I had one thought. (laughs) That's it. I don't know if you noticed, but Henriksen's introductory line in this episode is, Hey guys. And it actually hit me because we're so used to seeing Sam and Dean being referred to as boys. Hey boys. Hi boys. What are you boys up to? And it kind of made me want to scratch at that a little bit. Because throughout the three seasons that we've watched so far, and up until season 15, the brothers are going to be referred to as boys. Which is fine, I guess, you know, when they're in their mid-twenties, but kind of becomes a little strange when they get to their late 30s and early 40s. And I think that calling them boys was probably meant to show them as dependent on John at first, and then to show that they were kind of in a state of arrested development. And finally, especially in the later seasons, it was just for pure nostalgia. You know, like it was just to kind of like come back to those days when they were like young and innocent. And that's all fine. And I can work with that. But I just want us to remember how as a society, we really tend to talk about grown ass white men as boys. While in the same breath, we're going to be talking about black boys as men and teenage girls as maturing faster than boys. And I I don't want to get into the specifics because otherwise we're going to have to tag this episode a hundred different ways, but just think of instances of white men in their twenties committing crimes, like actual crimes, and it being written off as like, it was just a mistake. He's just a kid versus like how, again, as a society, we talk about black boys who are walking around wearing hoodies. So I just want to thank Henriksen for reminding us of that. That is very powerful. And I think it's something I do see a lot. I feel like since the Black Lives Matter movement has exploded and there is this amazing narrative that is going over what media we consume, both news and written media, and poking at this and reminding people of this kind of inaccuracy or unfair treatment. 
or even pointing it out for the first time, because I, I don't know that everybody will have noticed it until it's pointed out to them. That is very, very true. Thank you for bringing that up. Now, did you have any personal reflection and call to action for this week? You know, I think like always, I had a lot of trouble finding something to connect with. And then it occurred to me that that was the problem. Sometimes you're not able to connect with everything or everyone around you. Sometimes you are going to be in situations where you were not the, I don't want to say designated audience for it, but it's really not your space to be in. And I kind of feel like that's Nancy in this world. Oh, that's so true. Oh, Nancy. I get it. She is a receptionist at a police station in a small town where probably the worst thing she deals with is like maybe a drunk who comes in once in a while and gets locked up. Like she's not seeing hardened criminals walk through this door every day threatening her. I feel like she is so outside when it comes to this, what eventually becomes an all out war. And even the fact that she has to get involved with it would, even if it's just laying in the trap outside with another like officer, like it feels so disconnected. Not everyone is comfortable with everything the way you might be. And I think it's important to remember that about people around you and ask yourself, or at least make sure to reflect on that. Are they okay with this? And can you make this scenario better? So my reflection, my, my new goal for myself is just remember to acknowledge other people's feelings and experiences around you. Don't assume you know, it's kind of the difference between like being included and belonging somewhere, you know, because Nancy is included in those conversations. She's included in the episode, but does she belong truly? And I think that that's a very good question to ask yourself about the people in your life. Thank you. And yourself for this week. So I'd like to, to focus a little bit on the end of the episode so I'd like us to go back to the end of the episode for this, because we haven't quite discussed it. So I feel like it's it's kind of the time to do that. So at the end of the episode, Ruby says that since everybody died in the end in the blast, it would have just been better to sacrifice Nancy and to save the others. And this is something that I fundamentally disagree with, because I think that the choice that you make are directly rooted in your values, especially when there are like no good choices in front of you. To be faced with this impossible choice in fiction kind of allows us to work it out safely because it's fiction. So no one is actually dying or getting sacrificed either way, right? Like Nancy is not real. So we can, we can debate whether or not it was the right decision. It's a safe place to do that. And I think that this episode is kind of like one of those moral barometers where you can tell a lot about an audience member by who they side with. And now with that in mind, and to bring it back to something that's kind of like more applicable to our daily lives, this episode made me feel called to examine my own choices because I found myself saying like, oh, but I don't have time a lot lately. The reality is that so much of this time is used like doom scrolling. I think that being honest with myself about my choices, even if it's to say like, I need to dissociate for the next couple hours by scrolling Twitter and TikTok. So just being honest about those choices. We kind of get like shamed that this is like a negative thing to do or you like shouldn't be doing these things. But sometimes it just it's what you need in the moment. For me, the issue is more like to not lie to myself about it because that's just silly. Who am I trying to fool myself? I know that it's not true. <laughs> like, it is a really good point. You are right. Right. So I think for me, it's more that it, 
it's about making difficult choices and being honest about it and to kind of like bring it back. Like there's no good decision in certain situations. Like, do I want to do stuff and then be super tired or do I want to like dissociate and then lose track of time and then not do those things? But so it's like, again, the cost benefit analysis of doing one thing versus the other, which is, you know, in this case, it was trying to minimize suffering. Do you minimize suffering by killing one person and saving the others? or having everybody killed through some sort of other reason, right? And on that note, shall we head on to the community and see what they have to share with us this week? Certainly. This week, we have a voicemail from Callie. Hi, Mary. Hi, Drew. Hi, Rochelle. Um, My name's Callie. Um, I love the podcast. I found you guys about a week ago on TikTok, funny enough, while I was doing a supernatural rewatch. Um, I've pretty much just been rewatching it since season five came out. And I know that you guys are currently just getting to season three um, on your podcast, but I'm just now catching up with all of the episodes. And while I was doing my rewatch of the show, I got to Bloodlust um, and I didn't, it didn't even like register to me the title of it. And honestly, the fact that the title didn't even register probably shows how often I skip it upon my rewatches. And for context, um, I am a black um, Latina person. Um, So I, whenever I see black characters who are treated and like written and treated in a similar way that Gordon is... It's very obvious to me when there's not another, like, it's very obvious to me when there's not a black person in the writing room. And honestly, even if there was just one black person in the writing room, I know that that's not enough because unless, like, that one black person was the primary writer of this character... Like, even if there's just one black person in a writer's room, I could definitely see, like, a bunch of white writers writing something that is, like, not okay and the black person being too uncomfortable to even say anything. And honestly, like, it is not the responsibility of black people to tell white people to, like, do better. That is, like, work that white people need to do for themselves. And so... I literally came upon the episode and I only recognized that it was that episode where Gordon gets introduced because I saw Benny. And then I think it's like a couple seconds after we see Benny at the bar, I, we see Gordon. And don't get me wrong, I love Sterling. I love Sterling K. Um, I love Sterling K. Brown as an actor. Um, I love him in almost all of his roles. But... I just, like, can never really bring myself to watch his episodes because it's really almost painful, not almost, it's really painful um, to watch how he, as a black person, is written and just how, how, I don't even know, like, what the right word is, but whatever it is, it just makes me really sad to see how much his character is just falling right into those like malicious stereotypes 
of black men, specifically like dark skinned black men. And so, yeah, I, I just thought that it was, I don't know. Yeah, it was just very interesting. And I loved listening to your episode about it because it made it easier for me to be able to digest that part of the story without actually having to watch the episode because it is something that is quite painful for me to watch and yeah i just wish that there was more space in the supernatural fandom at large um to talk about like the mistreatment like not just the lack of representation because i feel like i feel like we as a fandom have come to terms with the fact that there's a lack of representation in the show but i don't think that there's a lot of room to talk about like just how much black characters are mistreated not just black characters it's pretty much all of the poc characters like in supernatural um but like specifically like just how stereotyped like the black characters are i mean i love missouri um but I've seen some criticism of almost like it's very interesting that like she is I think like one of the only black women that we see in like the early seasons who is an older black woman um and like they low-key put her in this like stereotypical mammy role almost like it's like her life like she is pretty much the only way that we see her like is in in dedication or in help of the winchester boys which is not to say that they don't have like a good relationship but the only times that we see missouri is in that sort of caretaker role and at least that I can remember. Like I said, I'm also on a rewatch. So from what I remember, she is like the only older black woman that like I can remember from the entire show. And I feel like it just says a lot that the writers came up with an older black woman to be in this role. And they were like, oh, well, she is going to like parent the boys and like be something that John can't because a lot of times historically like older black women were there to just take care of the children of white couples and yeah I just think it's very interesting like and just kind of sad to like see the way that like the black people are treated especially very early on um but yeah just let me know what you guys think. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for a very thoughtful voicemail, Callie. I am a white man. I am not going to try to take over your views. I'm just solely agreeing with this. But the fact that I can tell there was no black writer in the writing room, I think goes to show just how little care was taken with the... And again, I only have a very selective, small number of POC characters to look at it feels like they were sort of just written and they just slotted an actor in with no care for the color of their skin or their history or their anything. You know what? Like looking back, I'm almost ashamed to say I kind of complimented them as making a slightly better character in Missouri, but she kind of just feels like a big stereotype or like a bunch of tropes essentially. 
And again, I'm with you. She's a wonderful character. I love her. I want her in more episodes. But I feel like she's written very much to kind of fill a role. And I think we even discussed it at the time of. She feels a bit of like a stereotype in the writing. Callie, thank you so much for taking the time to send us this voicemail. It definitely means a lot to us that you felt like you could do this. So thank you very much for taking the time. I think that one thing that sort of seems to come back, whether it's with racial representation, whether if whether it's with gender representation or even like sexual orientation, I feel like understanding why that representation is harmful or hurtful kind of helps us with processing it. I'm very glad that any of our episodes was able to do that for you. That being said, I am going to agree with you on every single point. And I was sort of thinking as I was listening to your voicemail, and I, I think that unfortunately there is, there's really nothing good to say about racial representation on Supernatural. Sure, it it does get slightly, slightly better in later seasons, but it it's definitely not enough for it to kind of atone for the earlier seasons' sins, and even mid-seasons, too. You talk about the fandom, and I think that it's interesting to note as well that a lot of the fans and creators that are very vocal and very present are white. I mean, both of us are on here. So is Rochelle. So many of the TikTokers and the Twitter like big names are all white. So there's definitely an overrepresentation in the fandom of white fans. And so that's perhaps something that explains why there is so little room to discuss the treatment of black, indigenous, and people of color on on the show. And another thing that's sort of like, another thought that kind of came to me as I was listening to you was that at the end of the day, the show does not invest time, especially in this these seasons, in its Black characters. So they're going to try to inject personality into these characters in the form of tropes that are unfortunately incredibly harmful. But that's what happens when you don't actually take the time to develop characters who are well-rounded. And when you don't realize that just changing the skin color of a character is not just changing their skin color, it's changing how they're perceived. Because that's, that's the reality. It's not just a skin color. It's how that skin color racializes you and changes the way that people look at you. So again, thank you so much. With that, shall we head down to the crossroads? Of course. Would you like to get started? No. (laughs) I scoured this episode for a crossroads deal, and I cannot come up with one that is not yours. Yeah, I think this is going to be our first official where I'm just calling it now. This is a joint crossroads, so I'll let you get started, and I will piggyback at the end. I mean, mine is pretty straightforward, and it goes directly with what Callie was saying earlier. I wish that they hadn't killed Henriksen. Honestly, that's really where I land on this one. Before I even say this, I just want to acknowledge that, again, it's a Black character that we kill after just a few episodes, when he begins to have a personality of his own. You know, the one time that they're truly investing in this character, and they just kill him off like that anyway. And as a fandom, you know, we joke a lot about Sam's girlfriends all dying, But the men that Dean likes 
sure have a way of dying right after we get some sort of inkling that they might like him back. Just saying. I mean, this is exactly what I was, what I was getting at, too. It's just that you suddenly take a character who, up until now, has been a little enigmatic, has been a little mysterious. We've kind of been, we want to see more of him. And we get it now. We get to learn so much in such a little amount of time that I am suddenly so invested in him just to have him like almost like a secondary thought, just eh, he's gone. He really could have been an interesting character. I would have loved, even if the ultimate end for him was being killed off eventually, I would have liked to have given him like a small, like reunite with the brothers, learn something about him. What has he been doing since he left? Oh, he's, you know, continued being a cop, but also like dealing with demons and ghosts and stuff and picking up a few tricks of the trade and, then you could kill him off and at least give him like a story like that's still shitty, but better than nothing. I feel like this is something that's going to kind of come back also, because I feel like remember when we talked about the creative team kind of like having big chasms between them. This is, I think, one of those situations because the show, as we've seen, talks a lot about found family. But I think that there are still some people on the team who very much believe that family is Sam and Dean and right now Bobby. And that's that's family and that's it. I think that that's kind of what we're starting to see. We're starting to see the, the fragmentation of the creative team. So I am a little worried because I'm fairly sure based on the title for next week's episode, we are going to be reunited with another couple of characters I rather enjoyed. And I'm now fairly worried they might just get killed off. I guess we'll see next week. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a Supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira and Michelle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Callie for their message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward, and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carryingwayward. Carry on our wayward friends. It's very unlikely that you or I are going to have to decide whether to sacrifice a virgin or potentially all die in an explosion, right? Like, this is just not a situation that we're likely I mean, to encounter. my job is pretty stressful sometimes, okay? <laughs> You saw the number of virgins I hearts I've had to extract. God. Ugh. <laughs>